Welcome to 2021, where time travel isn't a thing. We would travel to the future, get technology and design pioneers from 2050 to teach us how to build a brilliant tomorrow. But that's against the rules of physics. Instead, we bring you the pioneers of today, tech enthusiasts, creatives, entrepreneurs, and listen to their individual stories, their purpose, and how they became the change makers they are today in their industry, and learn about what inspires them and how they function. This is the See You Tomorrow podcast. Welcome to the See You Tomorrow podcast. I'm your host, Katrina Logie. I'm a creative entrepreneur and a catalyst for change. And I get inspired by interviewing people who are creating change for tomorrow's world. The See You Tomorrow podcast is powered by Harbour Space, the university of the future. Find out more at harbour.space. Okay, so today on the See You Tomorrow podcast, we have the pleasure of talking with Michael Roysneck otherwise known as Mikel, but we will stick with Michael today. I do find that, actually, Michael, there's a bit of a combination um, of, you know, your, an English tone coming in from your experience. But you are a university teacher at Harbour Space, specialised in payments, but also you specialise in many other topics like nationalism, uh, teaching at the University of Edinburgh as well. And you are originally from Poland, and you have extensive understanding of payments and also retail financial services gained from working at blue chip companies such as Visa, MasterCard, um, Aviva and Barclays. So let's talk about your experience and kind of growing up in Poland and how you sort of came to where you are today. Absolutely, uh, well, f thank you and um, uh, welcome. Uh, uh, Katrina. Katrina. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> um, uh, so, so, so the question was, how, how, we, how did I get here? Is that the Yeah, tell, tell us about your story? life, mm. you know, your life of growing up in Poland and then you sort of, you know, studied at, uh, at Edinburgh. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. So, so I... And Oxford University. It's a weird one, right? Because whenever we think about how we got here, you, you sort of... You create a narrative, you create a story, right? And, of and ev every every five years or year, whatever your cycle is, you you sort of retell that story to yourself, and and sometimes the story changes. So I it's I, I like that question because you you always sometimes you find yourself a little bit surprised by your own answer because the narrative may have changed. And yeah. I think so. So I I grew up in Poland at a at a at a point of transition where um you know so 1989 was very much a defining moment uh, but as with many defining moments it was not a moment uh but actually it was a defining decade mm -hmm. um, um most things don't happen overnight so that sort of transition to from a um ex-communist ex sort of post-soviet um era towards liberalism and capitalism was um, was a lot of work and that work was economic, legal, political um, and 
I was brought up at at a time when people around me were were taking different roles within that work, within that labor of moving into whatever this was, whether that, whether that meant moving towards Europe, whether that meant um, moving towards liberalism, moving towards greater uh, prosperity. And, and I think my, my early childhood heroes were, um, were academics because the, they were the people who are taking the intellectual work of thinking how do we transition from where we were to where we want to be. Um, but they were also not just intellectual workers. So, so in that time, um, academics at least were also public intellectuals. So they were involved in the public debate. They were coming to uh, TV shows and discussing about you know, politics and what we need to do with our economy or with our everyday lives. Mm -hmm. They're also entrepreneurs. So they were setting up their own businesses. They were making money. Mm. So they were very interesting people. And I remember that I made that decision then that I want to be an academic because I thought of academics as these sort of agents of change yes. who um, come with ideas and basically help shape the world um, through these ideas, but also through action, through doing something with them. Right. So setting up NGOs creating companies and so on yeah and then i ended up in in the uk um i went to uh to the university of edinburgh uh, and to do a what they call a one plus three which is a a fixed program where you do a one-year postgraduate master's and a phd so you're automatically um accepted to both and um i was very fortunate to to get funding for that, uh, which was very, um, um, at that time, uh, rare. Um, Who funded you? Oh, the, the university did. So so this was a, some sort of a scholarship, uh, scholarship or a competition, I, I believe. Um, I think a college award, a school award, um, uh, awarded by University of Edinburgh. And that was a, a forming experience in many ways. I. In many ways, so living away from that world that cre has created me, and and then moving into a very different reality where very where things had different people had pub quizzes. Yes, right. So people, was this your first hand experience of sort of British culture, or had you experienced it before? Uh, my experience of British culture up until then was limited to faulty towers and uh perhaps perhaps keeping up appearances um uh, which were so two for those who don't know this that that two um very old uh old school, uh, yeah. old school uh tv series comedies in fact um that i'm not sure when they were actually uh, the 1980s well no i mean uh, uh, yeah no, 40 I, towers was i think late 70s 80s yeah so, something like that and keeping up appearances i can't remember who was um featured in that 
Um, I'm just trying to remember. So I re I can't remember the name of the actress. It was Hyacinth Bucket? Bucket actually was the was the lead, and she also wrote the the the. Um, she was the writer and the 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 lead actress for this. Um, and it was obviously all about the sort of sense of you know the, the all all about the class society, right? And 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 the the sort of the, the various ideas about what posh posh means in 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 the UK. So so all of that was very interesting. Quite different, obviously, to what I've experienced when I got to Edinburgh. Particularly that you have to remember this is still Scotland. Quite I um, when my uh, English partner. Um, actually uh well ex ex-partner um moved to edinburgh i remember the first comment was um this feels like a different country this this doesn't feel like 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 uh, i'm in the uk anymore so uh <laughs> and, and and they'd moved from where um gloucester so so i guess the sort of the the the, the most stereotypical um middle class sort of southern england english countryside um uh, have you visit Gloucester, visited gloucester yes, yes yes so i've i've kind of been um been around uh, around the block really around the, around all of the uk now yes um so so anyway so you were then posted you did a phd at edinburgh mm. spent how long at edinburgh um i think altogether doing the, the 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 PhD probably four years but I've I've been living in Edinburgh ever since so it's been 15 years now um since since I've moved into uh to Edinburgh so yeah because you were studying then and and politics at the University of Edinburgh and then you did an MBA from the University of Oxford that's right so the MBA is a is a much more recent affair um and um so I've 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 done an MBA of Oxford um in 2019 um so uh so graduated in 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 september 2019 this was a one-year uh program focused on uh innovation strategy um okay so, so I've, how, I've had enough uh, enough education by now <laughs> right okay but but edinburgh you've stayed living there because uh, you were you were you're now teaching at edinburgh well i well i think i i i I teach there because I stay there. Um, I the I fell in love with the city. Uh, it it is. Um, if you for if you can forgive the the darkness in in December uh, and January, um, then it is the sort of the, the the place that just reminds you of of you know where Harry Potter can can not just be written but also take place. It's. Um, it's a very clean, friendly, ecological it's city that has, I guess, the type of economy where people who are still middle class and even lower middle class, going back to the class system, um, can still have what you would see from the sort of that... that I, Fit, well, not ideal, but that kind of stereotypical m European middle class lifestyle of having leisure time, of being able to afford property, of being able to to afford a certain standard of living, mm. uh, which is actually rare across Europe these days. So you can see, obviously, the 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 crazy increase of Apple uh, of uh, of asset prices. Um, you can see. 
um, the, the move towards longer commutes, the move towards um, longer work, or you have a lot of places which maybe are um, outside of London, which were sucked by London in terms of, in terms of good jobs. So you find that there are pl places either very um, prosperous but busy and not very good to live, or places which are very nice to live but not very prosperous, where where jobs don't pay particularly well. And Edinburgh is still in that in that nice middle where where it's both prosperous and has a good standard of living. And did you find that in Oxford as well? Oh God, no, no. So Oxford is is a is a uh, suburb of London. Um, expensive. It's expensive in terms of of terms of rent, in terms of. Uh, uh, everyday life. Uh, I think the only thing um, that makes it uh, sort of feel like a town is is the kind of the closest, the, the size and the closest of nature. But in fact, George Street in Oxford is in the top five most polluted streets in the UK, believe wow. it or not, wow. right? Just because of the sheer amount of traffic that goes through it. And um, generally, um, you would people who teach at Oxford, who are not one of the well-established seniority of, uh, sort of senior members of, of colleges who get paid really well or who are independently wealthy, a lot of them actually live in the suburbs of London or maybe in places like Reading and commute to Oxford because they find Oxford itself too expensive for them to, um, to live, live in. So um, that's even Oxford University staff uh, can can't afford to live in Oxford these days. Okay, but you feel more at home in Edinburgh than Oxford, anyway. Uh, yes, I think I think there's something about a city that has a well, I, I, well it's not quite a mountain, but has a hill in the middle of it. Um, it is the greenest city in the UK, I believe, in terms of just the 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 sheer. Um, ratio of green space to 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 sort of residential areas and it has the highest concentration of independent uh shops and restaurants outside of london so even oxford has fallen victim victim to this that you go to oxford to the high street and it's nando's and it's pret and it's another yeah, it's pizza chains, express exactly. it's all chains yeah um but not in edinburgh no, so that's why you like it as well. It has its own identity. It has its own identity. Um, I think the biggest reason why I stayed in Edinburgh, to be honest, outside the fact that it's, 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 it's picturesque, you feel like in, in your some kind of cold fairy tale, um, is, is, is the form of nationalism that, um, that, Sco that Scotland has... Um, I want to say, ch I, I'm, I'm trying not to say chosen to pursue because I, actually I, I don't think that's the case. Um, generally nations when they are, I don't want to say young because obviously the Scottish nation isn't young, but when they are stateless, when they try to build um, statehood, when they try to build some sort of institutional autonomy, they tend to be very inclusive. Mm -hmm. And that's because it's a, it's a process of state building and nation building, right? You, you are more inclusive than not. Generally, exclusive um, national groups do not end up being very successful at creating their own states. Right. Because it's a process of, 
of of making consensus of of creating solidarity uh, and creating some some sense of public good um so in reality what does it mean it means that in in if, if in oxford if if a taxi driver asks you um where are you from and you say poland ah how long have you been in the uk say 15 years aha so when are you coming back to poland mm. so this is a conversation you'll have in oxford mm. in edinburgh you can have the same conversation with a taxi driver and they say and you say and they ask how long have you been in edinburgh and you say well about a year now oh then you're practically scottish yes so it's very much inclusive it's it's very inclusive and being there i mean now i've been there for 15 years but even if my in my fifth year of being in in edinburgh you do feel part of the community you feel that you're one of the neighbors you feel that you have this sort of um responsibility for your street for your building for your 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 town and and a wider uh by the country and it's something that is clear um and comes from all sides so from um, society so i say neighbors for instance um but also from um uh from the government right so mm. so we have seen a very open so uh, a government has been very open to to discussion and inclusion of immigrants to society a exhibition at the edinburgh national portrait gallery in i think 2008 i, be, I believe mm. um it was called uh scots through the ages or something like this and it was basically a portrait of 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 of, of, of scots famous both famous scots and scottish life mm -hmm. um throughout the ages and and there were there were some paintings and and obviously uh, for me recent times you also had a lot of um uh photos and uh and i and i remember that you you had in the in the 20 to 21st century sort of category you you had a photo of scots and this was a immigrant pakistani you know family of a um a dentist who set up his practice in glasgow and his wife who became a lawyer mm. and their kids who are uh studying somewhere in school the, were, um, there, were there many polish studying with you at edinburgh um Actually, I, I believe that I was the only one that I knew whilst I was studying, but I did, I did meet other Eastern Europeans. Right, okay. And so um, wh which year are we talking about when you were studying in Edinburgh? So that was, so I, st I, I moved to the UK and, s and started my studies in 2006. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was- mm -hmm. 15 years since you've been there. Basically. Yeah, there you go. And you are now teaching nationalism at Edinburgh. What is your interest with nationalism? I mean, why? What is it from from where you're coming from in in terms of you know being brought up in Poland and what what what's your relation to it? So I I think there are two two answers to this question. So one is there's definitely the motivation around. Um, around my background so so the the transition 1989 what a lot of people forget was not 
simply a workers' movement. It was not simply a democratic movement. It was a nationalist movement. And people, if you look at the um, Solidarity and uh, Lech Wałęsa and, and John Paul II, you know, all, all of that that brought in the collapse of communism and, and, and moved into the new era of liberal capitalism and democracy, the, the, what was written on those banners when people marched, it did not say um, citizens, it did not say uh, the people, right? Yeah. It said Poles, right? It said Poland. Yeah. Um, and it was a form of nationalism which um, obviously took pride in, in the nation, but was also very much pro-European, pro-international. There was this attempt to, to the, the first, um, one of the first actions of the new government was to start obviously to the negotiations to, to join the EU um, when, when that was, um, when that became available. Right. So this was interesting to me because at the time when I was studying, nationalism was portrayed by political scientists and political theorists as a think of the past mm -hmm. and as a trend that is naturally exclusive, right? Mm. Uh, and not really compatible with... Um, with things like supranational identity, with, with the European Union, with NATO, with everything else. In fact, that was the time when the Germans were, were insisting in surveys that, the, that there are European first and German later, right? So it was the whole thing about feeling a bit embarrassed about, uh, um, you know, obviously things of the past and, and therefore not really wanting to be um, publicly proud of, of your own identity. Mm. And I suspected back then that this is actually probably temporary right and i suspected also that um the the kind of consensus that has occurred around liberalism which was that identity is neutral and it's all about individuals and it's all about some kind of abstract view of citizenship that that probably is not going to work Mm. And and my suspicion is what brought me to the to the PhD and to to wanting to teach this because my view in 20, 20, 20, um, 10, 20 mm. was that um, nationalism is going to come back with a vengeance mm. <laughs> in a sense. Mm. Um, and when I first submitted my book. Um, for uh, to 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 publishers, uh, uh, basically my, my book on nationalism, I remember that it was automatically rejected. It was rejected a week later, because the 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 reviewers basically well, one of the reviewers said, "This book is about nationalism. Nationalism is a thing of the past that at academics should 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 not be um, um, the." Um, uh, the, the, the focus or the subject of academic study mm -hmm. um, because it's both um, ethically dubious and also um, no longer um, you relevant. know uh, relevant yeah but then you would say that nationalism here is is focused on the past in Catalonia oh yes so uh, um, uh, and to be completely um, honest and transparent, I don't know much about Catalan um, uh, nationalism, oddly, oddly enough, um, as, as a person who chose to, to, to come here, I should probably read up. Yes. Um, 
so so uh, so you're particularly interested in in teaching on nationalism as a subject, but also it's funny how you've ended up in you know two places, Edinburgh and uh, Barcelona, which mm. are you know very much uh, you know they're fighting for for independence. Uh, absolutely. Now I'm I'm waiting to uh, have a you know a third appointment uh, in uh, Bilbao and uh, perhaps you know another one in uh, uh, in Canada. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think that would be that uh, would be an idea, a good idea. Uh, and make sure that you find the right hairdressers in those places too. Exactly. Yes, that's <laughs> that's that's a common theme of my life. Is uh, um, is there's one hairdresser I trust, uh, and uh, and unfortunately. Um, uh, he's in, there's another reason I'm, I, I, I can't move out of Edinburgh because it would mean that I would have to fly every time I want to get a haircut um, and that would be a, an acceptable um, carbon footprint if, if it went through the entire you know yes but then you were flying from you were telling me earlier how you were flying from Cape Town to uh, Edinburgh to teach well so that's true to teach so this is a public service I guess uh, <laughs> of, of some sort so that justifies it but um, but haircuts uh, don't obviously no no <laughs> and you arrived in Barcelona when did you arrive in Barcelona for the first time um f to, 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 to to teach well here. you came you've oh. been here you were mentioning about 30, 30 times, times. Yes, yes that's right so the first time i arrived to barcelona was when when i was i, I believe in primary school with my parents and uh we we saw uh sangrada familia and and we um i remember discovering sangria then not because um uh, my parents were giving it to me but because the 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 the, the, our neighbors at the hotel, the, the, the parents of, 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 a, of a, another boy I, I befriended, um, uh, kept giving him sangria and not understanding why he has stomach problems. So that, that was that, that's the only thing I remember from, <laughs> from my time in Barcelona. Do you still like sangria? I'm not a huge fan of sangria. No. 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 Um, so you, were, you came here as a foodie because your parents were, were foodies? I, um. I mean, we all ate a lot. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and you're still eating a lot. <laughs> and, and obviously, you recently get, came to Barcelona to teach at, at Harbour Space. That's right. So how did you discover um, Harbour Space? And, you know, how, yeah, how did you end up in Barcelona again? So, so I, I discovered Harbour Space um, through a teacher who already um, uh, taught here and it is teaching here and 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 perhaps you've actually um, spoken to recently so so Alex who teaches uh, digital marketing yes. um, our paths actually crossed um, when we were both working in London many years ago so I've known Alex probably for a good 10 years mm. um, now and um, we've never actually worked together uh, but we had some uh, I think some meetings in, in a similar um, client space uh, and we ended up going going out for, for, for drinks uh, and, and we've been doing that ever since for the last 10 years. Great. Um, but in fact, we actually spent some time together in Barcelona way, way before Harbour. So, so, um, uh, so it's, it's been, uh, we shared a love for the city. Uh, but um, in, so that introduced me to Harbour, but indeed the introduction to harbor space as a as a, a concept as a as a uh, in terms of what it uh, does um 
um, uh, Svetlana, uh, so so the CEO uh, uh, at uh, uh, Harbor, um, uh, was the the person who uh, who introduced me uh, and who gave me a very passionate um, sort of uh, narrative about uh, both why uh, Harbor Space was um, set up uh, and also I guess the sort of the vision for the future. Uh, who the students at Harbor Spates are. And I think that was the ultimate convincer, I guess. What, what was, what, in terms of the students, you mean? Yes. So, so um, there are different types of education and educational experiences. And I've, I've taught in many places in the past. So I've taught at Edinburgh University. I've taught at, at um, actually did some teaching at Oxford. I taught at the uh, University of Stirling, which is almost uh, um, not a complete opposite of Edinburgh, but it's it's a uh, it's very close to Edinburgh. But it's a the, the type of students are very very different. Mm. Um, first first of all, they're all much younger, and not, none of them have done a gap year. Uh, so if, uh, they go straight into, into they studying. They go, go, go straight into studying. Mm. Um, so it feels very different, and uh, almost no one had w would have had any a job before um, starting to study or in the gap year, as a lot of people will have at the University of Edinburgh. So, so, so very different environments. I've worked also in high with high schools. Um, I did a lot in Poland on trying to. Uh, promote uh, philosophy and philosophical education in, in, in high schools. I used to co-run the uh, International Philosophy Olympiad for high school students. This was many years ago. Um, I co-organized it in 20, 2001, believe wow. it or not, and that was in Warsaw and, and then um, in many other cities. Um, but you, but the, the main um, attraction I think you know for for a teacher it's always <laughs> the students and yeah. um a, and what they want who they are why they are here and and this is um so i did i was offered to to do a one-week course mm -hmm. at harbor which i held in november uh because of covid because of all the restrictions that uh, were happening at the time i was unable to come to harbor but i i i um, um I held it online, it online. Mm. And I was I was very impressed, and, and the the I was impressed by the num by the number of people. Actually, everyone at Harbor Space was very much self driven. They knew why they were here. Um, they knew why they were taking the course. They were taking good use of that time. Mm. Um, in general, um, people were very hands on. You did not have to. If you ask people to do something, to mm. do an activity, they were doing it whilst you were still finishing your sentence, right? So, so kind of the, uh, they were in, infused, in, yeah. in, infused, but also have a, um, I guess, bias towards action, right? Mm. Bias towards doing something rather than 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 not. And is that different to the students that you teach at Edinburgh? Oh, absolutely, and I think it goes back to well, so mm, to say absolutely. So. Edinburgh, like any large university, will have where you have the, the class size for for politics, for instance, is four hundred students in in what in, in year in what in year one, right? Mm, mm -hmm. uh, I think four fifty potentially now with COVID. Wow. Um, now that is a 
not you ma you cannot manage this experience in the same way that you do in a um much more personalized experience that you do at harbor space right yeah um so it does create more it does mean that they have to do more things themselves at, at edinburgh right so yeah. uh, there's much there are much fewer contact hours i believe that in total in a week they will have probably six contact hours mm -hmm. as opposed to um 15 right here in at at minimum in a given week at harbor space so so that creates a very different experience i'm available to my students at harbor space um every day uh and i have the duty to to hold one one hour to be available at least for one hour every day to harbor uh space students and in reality i i you know i don't count my time and basically whenever someone needs me i'm i'm there i'm available through slack yeah um now how long, how long are you visiting this time Oh, um, three weeks. Okay. And tell us about the course you're teaching on payments. Um, so this course is a, is a new course, which I designed um, uh, for specifically for Harbour Space. And the, the purpose of the course is really to do two things. One is, to, is a general introduction for people to, who are either going to be are likely to be working in some sort of fintech space. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's part of the fintech program at Harbor Space. Okay. Or who might have some sort of touch points in any capacity with payments. Now, um, every the point of this course is actually uh, that whilst payments used to be something that uh, you wouldn't really do or you would do maybe once a year when you talked about uh, talked with your provider um, in the offline world uh, payments today basically um, permeate every every everything permeates with payments so uh, we talk often about of open banking but we talk about open finance so we talk about um, embedding finance and embedding payments and financial products across the user journey across different experiences uh, example uber right mm -hmm. i mean this is an old example but why was uber so successful because it has a seamless payments experience because you come in you don't have to think about paying and you close the door you leave it saves a lot of time and it saves that embarrassment that people used to have in a taxi when they said oh i actually don't have enough change can we drive to a to a cash machine oh this that one doesn't work um i mean this created a lot of stress for yes. people to do this right yeah. yeah so this is one reason is to is to have this to to have an introduction to the industry and a second one i do believe that this is an area where a lot of innovation and uh, not just has happened is going to to happen um in in the last in the next five to ten years um it's a major driver of value and innovation both in the offline and and also the the, the digital world um and it's really to give people the tools to think about which areas of innovation can are most uh well, at the easiest to um to disrupt Okay, so what are we seeing in terms of, you know, how, what is the future of online payments? And, you know, in terms of what, are, what, what new sort of innovations are we seeing? So you can, 
you can um, look at this in, 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 in two ways. So you can look at this from a perspective of what is, what is driving uh, payments. And what's driving payments is primarily, well, in Europe and the US, it's primarily consumer preference and regulation. Where is where is consumer pre, uh, consumer preference and and regulation? Uh, where where are these uh, leading payments? Well, consumer preference these days is around choice. So people like to pay the way they want. So what we have seen is obviously the rise of digital wallets, aggregators, PayPal, Squares, um, adding additional payments options, adding Bitcoin as a way of um, paying now to for Teslas soon and, and so on. So we're going to see obviously choice um, leading um, uh, payments in, in Europe and the US, uh, certainly, right? Um, the second bit is regulation. What is regulation doing? Well, it's um, it's increasing competition. So in Europe, uh, in particular, open banking, so PSD2, for instance, a regulation is is driving um, more more competition, more disruption, opening it to new players uh, who are financial and non-financial. It is also regulating fees that you can charge for payments, trying to push them down. What does that mean? Well, in reality, it means that um, probably the the cost of payments in the in the medium to long term is going to go down mm -hmm. the cost of payment related services so the the cost of convenience of of the fact of uh, of things like being able to have your money faster um, the cost of um, data that uh, is um, collected. Pro collected when you pay about your payment behaviors and things like that probably this is where a lot of these firms are going to be making money. In fact, it's not probably. I mean, if you look at, as one of the things I tell my students, if you look at Visa's financial statements, not from this year, but even um, five or six or seven years ago, less than a third of Visa uh, Inc., so, so the global um, uh, publicly listed company, uh, um, less of the third of the revenue comes from processing transactions. The rest of the revenue comes comes from added value services uh, and other types of fees, but actually not from processing payments. Mm. Um, so, so this is a kind of a learning that we're going to have to say. So, when people say things like, "Oh, well, crypto does this um, this intermediate uh, payment firms uh, will will the fact that payments can now be free will that mean that that banks will stop making money?" Of course not. Um, what, what will happen to the sort of old institutions? Do you think? Um, well, these are these are networks, um, and they have created powerful ecosystems. So I think um, what we were going to see is we're going to to see, similarly to what happened when online exploded, right? Mm. So Visa, Mastercard, and many companies that process transactions that we don't know because they're not consumer brands. Um, uh, many of these companies, they've missed the dot-com bubble, uh, the dot-com boom. Uh, mm -hmm. The bubble was a different story, right? The yeah. dot-com boom. And this is what created, what allowed the creation of PayPal as, a, as a, also a, a, a big player um, in this space. I think that we were going to see probably a, and a kind of a crypto uh, boom that's going to see a creation of another player who might be you know that 
kind of equivalent of a new PayPal. Um, did that mean that, um, you know, did the creation of PayPal mean that Visa and MasterCard lost? Not really, right. because they can because they, they, the, the reality is that they're still part of every bit of the ecosystem and they still um, charge transaction fees. So there will be sort of, you know, collaborations in these um, currencies. So, for example, Bitcoin, you know, cryptos, so banks will kind of see that they have to sort of take these on and kind of work together, basically. And I think I think they're going, to, it's in their own interest to drive adoption, because if they can drive adoption of cryptocurrencies and basically be the people who own the infrastructure that uh, allows me and you to interface with those currencies, taking away the, the pain, the stress, the thinking about, is this wallet safe? Is it not safe? Right? It's, these are the kind of things that we're worried about. Yeah. I keep telling people that um, in Poland in 2014, 80% of online so e-commerce transactions, where there was an e-commerce boom, uh, were being paid by cash. And people w wonder, how is that possible that in 2014, 80% of transactions in any um, uh, modestly developed country would be would be paid by cash on yeah. cash on delivery and it's a simple simple answer people did thought that um, cards are not uh, not safe on uh, online it was it was um, it was because Visa MasterCard put the uh, f the the money behind the education marketing to basically convince consumers to say cards are safe to use online that 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 behavioral cha change happened. Um, and I think something similar will happen with with uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. We now see the asset bubble or the asset boom, however you want to call it, mm -hmm. because there's a lot of interest in this and mm -hmm. a lot of money flows comes into, but the actual adoption, the number of people who ac actually hold cryptocurrency uh, or I are able to pay with it is still far behind anything that would um, even seem like a payment system. Um, I think there is an opportunity for these organizations to get in early and basically take a cut um, uh, from from the transactions that are going to proceed. Because we've seen a massive rise in Bitcoin this year, for example. Why do you think that is? Um, multiple reasons. I, 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 I personally so there's obviously the story that um, that a lot of believers of bitcoins have that that explains that rise, which is two things are happening at the same time. We have um, an extreme overproduction of debt. So this is fee uh, governments pr pr printing money. Um, to, 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 to recover the economy. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think increasingly people realize that, um, that, the, that the question of how we're going to pay back the debt is actually the wrong question to ask because probably we are not going to pay it back. Mm. So there, so there is a real possibility emerging, and I think people who back crypto understand this possibility, that we're going to be in a world with constant high debt, 
What does it mean that there is a world of constant high debt? It means a lot of power to the, to the state in order to control things like inflation, asset prices, and so on, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Well, in that case, how can you protect yourself and value of your assets um, in that world? Well, you can uh, put your money into assets which are finite, right? So Bitcoin comes to mind. It's very interesting that when there was some study performed by, I believe, by Gemini um, on who buys Bitcoin, technically people who are wealthy were much more likely to buy Bitcoin than people who are less wealthy. That kind of makes sense given yeah. also the price and risk and so on. Mm -hmm. But the other interesting piece of in information was that actually people who own their own property, who own uh, real world financial assets, mm -hmm are much less likely to buy Bitcoin. Why is that? And this is an interesting one because perhaps what people who are buying Bitcoin are now people who realize that they're unlikely to buy a house because they don't have the money for the deposit, but they understand that cash is going to be losing its value and assets, real assets, fi finite assets are going to be, to be increasing in value, are going to be inflating through this government debt. So what you might see is people thinking, well, I can't afford a house. Mm. Well, what can I do now? I can buy some Bitcoin, right? Yes. Because at least then I'm in a asset that cannot be, can any, no one can make more of it, right? And therefore they cannot deflate me in, in the same way that, that um, you can do with US dollar or you can do with the Euro. So I think this is one reason. The second reason is um, I think it was clear that this year is a year with large scale adoption of many institutions of, of crypto. So obviously PayPal, Visa, MasterCard, Tesla, and these things are not a knee jerk reaction to the increase of, of price of Bitcoin. So for instance, MasterCard um, has launched first um, crypto wallet that became a principal member of, of MasterCard and is now able to issue MasterCard cards, which are basically denominated in cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. It's the first one, um, first first card like this in, 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 the, in history. Using cryptocurrencies. Using crypto, uh, cryptocurrencies. Basically, you don't have to do any conversion because uh, what people don't often know, because they might have Revolut on some other type of neobank, is that normally when they when they hold, uh, well, when their bank tells them that they called that they hold cryptocurrencies on the card, they don't actually hold cryptocurrencies on their card. They actually call the balance. They hold the balance in whatever fiat currency they have stored in their bank, and the crypto is just a virtual account that kind of represents a linked value. But it's not really cryptocurrency that they hold on their card, which is significant because transactions are very expensive. That's why it basically it's expensive to, to buy and sell be yeah. because there is that settling cost of doing this. Yeah, the interest that you pay. Exactly. So will, will you be avoiding that interest by going by using cryptocurrencies? Uh, you might do. Uh, right. So uh, an example of of this this card, that's a crypto card. So now both. Uh, MasterCard and Visa supported. What does it mean? So, if you have a, uh, a if uh, in the future when Crypto.com starts issuing cards with Visa, you will have some cryptocurrency on your Visa Crypto.com card, and you will be able to go 
and to the Harbour Space Cafe, which I'm not sure if it downstairs, actually... Downstairs, yeah. Downstairs. Not, not open at the moment. Not open at the moment because of COVID, I imagine, right? Yeah. But at some point will be open. And uh, if Harbour Space Cafe does not accept the cryptocurrency that this card has, then you will be able to pay with it because you'll be able to pay with it wherever the Visa logo shows. Um, but there's going to be a conversion, right? There's going to be a conversion from crypto to to euro in this case, and Visa is going to take um, some some fee for that conversion plus the the card transaction charge. That's that's what Visa is going to take. But then it's possible that in I don't know two years time, Harbor Space Cafe is going to actually accept also a payment in that cryptocurrency. In that in that case. Um, the transaction will settle in that cryptocurrency directly without the need of to to basically um, uh, change um, into fiat, in which case the transaction will be cheaper, but Visa will still take uh, some fee for the fact that you're using the card, right? So so there's going to be a, the, the payment vehicle charge for the contactless transaction or for the chip and pin transaction. Um, they're going to still make money on the actual transfer. I see, but just using different um, ways and, and collaborating in different ways. Correct. Yeah. And in terms of how, do you, how have you adopted these um, services yourself? Do you, I mean, how do you kind of, you've sort of invested in Bitcoin or any of these things? So I do, I do hold, I do hold um, some Bitcoin. I do, I, I don't believe, you know, in, in uh, learning about uh any innovation in in complete abstract you you kind of have to do something with it uh, i even own a crypto kitty uh <laughs> going back <laughs> to some questions that my students have been um asking me because it's interesting you want to go through that journey you want to understand how difficult it is to yeah, to yeah. buy it in the first place yeah, absolutely. Yeah. um am i invested in bitcoin um well no um I speculate on, on on Bitcoin, so I don't know what what is the price, what is the, the 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 real price of Bitcoin. What is if I do have a sense that the price is going to appreciate simply because there is certainly a a, a movement now towards. There's going to be there's going to be, there's a critical mass of institutions that are going to um, show adoption of of Bitcoin, and that's going to uh, inflate its 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 value. Um, perceived value, I think. Um, is there a limit to that and how much of it is a bubble? Who knows? Um, what is an investment to me? An investment to me is something that has a, uh, a, a, a future cash flow that, that you can um, uh, value. And, uh, and, and Bitcoin is not an investment in that um, uh, traditional sense, um, but it's a speculative asset that, that you can still make, make money on. So I, I have uh, I have like uh, any responsible investor I have a, a proportion of my portfolio which um, I dedicate to to gambling um, and to spec and to speculation and 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 probably a large portion of that portfolio is then in in Bitcoin. Okay, so we will be you know in the future be seeing uh, this new currency side by side the traditional ones so i yeah i think so i'm not sure whether bitcoin is actually has much of a chance of being that currency i mean i, I we will see acceptance of bitcoin um but there are better candidates for this and certainly um 
I mean, the use of cryptocurrency does not necessarily mean that it has to be the currency. So, um, for instance, it there's there's a huge future for using cryptocurrency to settle fiat to fiat transaction. It's cheaper and faster to move money from, let's say, uh, an Argentinian peso. It's probably actually probably compliant to use money from uh, Argentinian peso to a US dollar mm. using cryptocurrency as a settling mechanism um, than it is to, to do it directly from an Argentinian peso to to, to the US dollar. It's also illegal to do it. I, at least it's controlled um, because there are foreign exchange uh, limitations in Argentina in this particular uh, example. But there are other um, examples, right? So there mm. are many regimes uh, which where banks do not cooperate or close you or directly mm -hmm. with, um, with banks in Europe or the US. Sending money there is very costly and time consuming. It's not unusual for a bank transfer from Europe to the UAE to take two weeks and cost uh, 50, 50 or $60. So, so even the fact that there might be a, a settling, um, mm -hmm. a transaction settling uh, through a cryptocurrency uh, is definitely the, the, the future. And that's partially how the RippleNet uh, works, right? So RippleNet Ripple works. Okay, how does the RippleNet network work? So it's, there's so much to talk about, but it's very, it's fascinating to hear. The Ripple Network, how does that work? So, so we won't get to the, the detail of the actual um, network, but, the, but, but it is very much, um, so, so, so the, the cooperation is with Visa in, in this particular case. And what um, the network allows is basically you can, um, you can, you can have a, a client or customer um, uh, who uh, wants to pay in, in some fiat currency, let's say the US dollar, um, who is able to uh, initiate the payment through basically a, a, a visa gateway, which authorizes this uh, through their US dollar account. Um, but instead of being rooted um, the way that it would normally be rooted, which is it would go from one bank to another trusted bank that has an account with this this account, and then from that bank to another bank uh, that also is trusted bank of that bank, and at some point go through with a European settlement system, change currencies, and um, at some point the fifth fifth bank actually saying that the money is there. By the way, somewhere on the way, there would be a manual process where someone would would ask where is this transaction coming from. And then the, the the whoever is managing transaction in 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 the recipient's bank would have to call up the the banks on the way to work out exactly where this money coming from and what's the source of funds. In this particular case, this transaction will get authorized um, immediately, settled through basically a conversion that uh, happens through a co cooperation between Visa and RippleNet. Um, uh, in 10 seconds mm -hmm. um, and be available to a recipients uh, in another participating country in that uh, that that allows that um, that uh, gateway um, in in 10 seconds um, I see. So uh, with minimum with much lower fees I see so it, it is like a ripple effect it is like a ripple effect exactly <laughs> yeah. so I mean the p apart from you know teaching uh, payments at uh, Harbor, Harbor Space and also you're also teaching about corporate startup collaboration. 
Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Because you, you work with Startup Genome and you talk about, you know, ecosystems for startups. How do you bring your sort of experience from there into your teaching? So, so there's dual interest. So I'm, I'm interested in, in ventures and a lot of entrepreneurs are people who are disenchanted with corporates, thinking that corporates are slow moving, not innovative. They can't work with them, mm. right? And this is problematic for two reasons. It's problematic for, uh, because the first thing that, the, that any entrepreneur ends up learning is that uh, a year or two after they launch their freedom, uh, well, their, their, their startup and they gain their freedom from the corporate world, they end up entering some corporate office. And they end up entering some corporate office because it's either the customer or the partner or indeed the company that's going to accelerate or 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 fund them mm -hmm. and 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 they they are in shock because having just spent a year or two working in a very different setting working in a very different language um they now are faced again with with this large corporate behemoth. And there is this situation, oh, I just spent a year or two ignoring you and thinking about how inefficient you are and how pointless it is to work with you. Now I actually have to do something with you. So I, I wanted to, I guess the, the point of the course was partially to prepare um, students at Harbor Space for this, because often that is the case. You sell you are a B2B um, a startup, you have a startup culture, but you have to deal with organizations, with clients that do not have a startup culture. So that was one reason of doing this. Mm. The other reason and the other misconception is actually a lot of innovation and a lot of um, impactful innovation actually happens in corporates. It takes a lot longer. Uh -huh. It is much more frustrating. Yes. Um, a lot of innovation uh, in corporates gets held up and isn't even allowed to fail because of that uh, culture of not wanting to fail. So things, projects just get stopped and frozen and it's very frustrating for, for everyone. Mm -hmm. But in reality, when the large corporates actually do something, the adoption is obviously touches um, tens of millions of customers as opposed to um 200,000 right and yeah. and it has the um propensity of 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 actual change so i i like also working with corporates and and getting them to understand the potential in um in uh, accelerating a specific process or product or startup so i like talking to 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 corporates and and, and trying them to basically to change their mind about something and trying to, to ex expedite uh, a process. So oh, I see. Uh, when I was with Visa, I, I worked on this, um, on this uh, uh, FinTech uh, fast track. So this sort of basically this commitment uh, of the company to, 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 to give decisions, give feedback to, to startups um, much faster than um than than they you normally would which is uh we would talk we will talk to you for two years and at the, the end of two years at some points go cold right so mm. um 
So okay, so you like seeing it from the from the corporate side mm. and from the startup side, but also innovating on both ends. Mm. Yeah, and you're working with Startup Genome. Tell us about the work you're doing there. So, so Startup Genome um, is um, is an organization. It's a private organization and a non-for-profit organization. So it's both entities, I guess. And the not-for-profit entity is very much about pro producing ecosystem as an enabling and ecosystem enhancing research data to basically help uh, both entrepreneurs, but also um, cities, countries to basically become, I don't want to say the next Silicon Valley, we like to use that term, um, but one of the points we often make is that actually the Silicon Valley model is not necessarily the model for everyone. So, mm. so um, a lot of the, so wh when I say it's a, it's a not-for-profit, I mean, we have a, have a research, uh, Sarah Genome has a research arm, which basically um, collects, and actually it's a cost to startup Genome to do this, collects a lot of data on ecosystems of the world, whether it's from Crunchbase or Pitchbook, uh, but also from uh, uh, many other additional sources. So Startup Genome has member organizations, so things um, like local government, um, startup organizations around the world yeah. who feed into this um, gigantic database uh, that tells Startup Genome about the uh, entrepreneurs, about the startups, the performance of these startups, talks a lot of, um, allows Startup Genome to understand also things like the impact on um, the wider economy of, of those places. So things like job creation, for instance, mm. or the level of education and so on. Mm. Um, and the outputs of this research is actually made available for free as an open access. So, um, so Startup Genome publishes uh, an annual um, startup ecosystem, um, the Global Startup Ecosystem Report, which is uh, published with an introduction from the World Economic Forum and um, many other partners, uh, and then distributed to policymakers and entrepreneurs and investors around the world to help them understand which ecosystems around the world are growing, which are not, and why, uh, and what's basically uh, facilitating this growth. And then there is a for-profit um, arm of Startup Genome, which basically um, offers um, consulting services to um, policy makers and other government and non-government bodies around the world when the question is, how can we accelerate this ecosystem further based on these insights? Okay, so your role there is in terms of helping with building these ecosystems. So my so um, uh, my role is a, as a director of research. So um, uh, so so the role is really um, so the responsibility is f for all the research products. So the global um, startup ecosystem uh, report. There are also now sector-specific reports. So the uh, FinTech report is the first one that Startup Genome published in November last year. That's, again, it ranks FinTech uh, ecosystems globally and uh, also does some deep dives on 
um, what is driving fintech in, in those places. Uh, there's a lot of uh, proprietary research that we would have done uh, on the impact of COVID, for instance, on um, funding and also on things like which policies uh, seem to have worked better um, in terms of addressing uh, the, the impact of COVID on, on startups and entrepreneurs. Um, so these are the kind of things that that uh, I would typically uh, make decisions on and would be the face of startup genome research to all our members. So all the public uh, sector and not-for-profit organizations that either um, use our our data yeah. or the consulting products as well. Okay, and, and Startup Genome, they're based out of San Francisco, are they? Based out of, so funded, founded and based out of San Francisco, uh, also with a secondary headquarters in uh, Berlin uh, in, in, in Europe. Okay, and were you, you're based in Edinburgh doing all this work, basically? Technically, well, I think COVID has allowed many, many things to happen. Uh, uh, even even uh, my ability to to teach this uh, course uh, in November um, uh, at Harbor Space uh, was very much something that um, would probably not have happened as easily beforehand. Because if not for COVID, then my Edinburgh University class would have been set and in person in in the autumn and my harbor space class would also have to be in person so i would not be able to to teach both but right. in in this case i was able to so 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 covid allows a lot of a lot of new things that um for some and for others it's a limiting factor so and, and also stopped people like you from traveling all the way from cape town to uh, edinburgh to teach a class and nothing stops me from traveling but uh <laughs> <laughs> you you um how many times have you done that when you tra traveled to edinburgh to teach a class from cape town oh probably uh so let's see i was there for five months so um i i imagine probably about eight or nine times yes amazing amazing i mean nine thousand miles how many miles is it from cape town to edinburgh i don't know but it's for it's a four it's a 13 hour flight to London and yes. then there's an hour another hour on the plane to, to, teach to Edinburgh class. very good and um, just I mean uh, uh, going back to the startup genome you know startup ecosystems can you could just give some examples of good ecosystems for startups around the world in Europe actually so it's it's interesting because it depends on the type of eco ecosystem so generally uh, we would think of ecosystems as so put Silicon Valley aside for a second because that's basically created by the largest concentration of, of public and private, but primarily private now capital in the world. Uh, putting that aside, we have ecosystems which we would call hubs so or, or centers of excellence. So um, uh, Tel Aviv uh, would be a certainly a hub, a hub and a center of ex excellence for uh, fintech. Mm -hmm. um, and potentially increasingly for blockchain-based technology. Um, um, if you look at, and, and, and so they really build expertise and brand, and they, they're very good at getting talent who want to work in fintech into Tel Aviv and getting um, you know, the right visas for them and, and so on. Okay. Um, I think London is a kind of a multifaceted um, hub, Certainly, so 
certainly for fintech, uh, probably also for ad tech, um, definitely for AI. It's a leading hub for AI, both in terms of um, the, the the quality of, um, I guess, the labor there in terms of just the AI expertise. I think London has altogether more AI talent than all of the continental Europe put together wow. or like so or, or at least contributes to like 50% of of Europe's AI talent which okay. so you can see that that um, concentration there mm -hmm. um, but then you look at places like Barcelona and Berlin mm -hmm. and it's interesting because those places have um risen really quickly in terms of uh, startup communities mm -hmm. um in the last few years potentially stagnated a little bit why is that and that's because the model is not a hub or a center of excellence so it's the the, the um in london in tel aviv um those ecosystems were built quite intentionally by a high concentration of government and industry resources so banks basically and payment companies and governments regulators work working together to yeah. create a hub around a specific um specific capability mm -hmm. barcelona and berlin were cities where people chose to live in and chose to work to place their businesses because of a number of cultural as well as ecosystem factors. So we call them cultural hubs. Um, this is a place where it's good to be entrepreneur. It's actually not that good to be an entrepreneur or a developer in London, believe it or not. It's it's good to have an, to have be to have a, a series A in London because it's a great place for capital for fintech, mm. but it's not a great place to be a developer or an entrepreneur. What, because of the cost of living and because of the cost of living because you're because of the cost of living means that you're constantly chasing your next funding round which, which means that you're you have to go for a, for a very aggressive VC which means that if you are going for an aggressive VC then it means that someone's going to be breathing that down your neck and asking for um, for higher user user numbers uh, active user counts in every month right so it's a very it's, it's a very stressful place to be. But um, then Barcelona is good in terms of for entrepreneurial developers, but then it's not good for in terms of investors. Um, I think that might be changing. I think Barcelona might be actually getting a bit of an edge over Berlin. So I think Berlin has really stagnated as an ecosystem because it's been playing its cultural ca card for too long and it's basically not producing um, companies that really scale. Um, this is partially because of the lack of support and the fact that city authorities in Berlin are, well, mostly focusing on the lack of affordability of the city and the fact it's growing a little bit too fast. Mm. So um, I think growing the startup ecosystem is not much of a priority. Now, I'm actually less versed in terms of how um, the uh, authorities in Barcelona or or indeed in Catalonia, uh, how much they focus on, on the ecosystem. But certainly what I've been seeing is that there's more specialism in terms of venture capital in Barcelona coming um, uh, for um, uh, particularly um, uh, marketing related and retail oriented, so e-commerce oriented 
um, types of startups. So I think e-commerce and ad tech or market mark tech has become a strong point of Barcelona in a way that Berlin, I think, is still finding its sort of identity in terms of what it's actually strong at. Okay, and Amsterdam? Amsterdam is another uh, so yeah so these are all nice places to 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 be to be in uh, with very good uh, sort of uh, way of sort of, uh, living uh, yes. yes exactly yeah. and so sort of balanced and and so on and Amsterdam is also kind of um, suffering has actually fallen in the in the global rankings actually places places that have risen in global rankings are places like um, uh, uh, Paris um, well. When I say risen, I mean risen in Europe, because actually all of these um, places are losing their global ranking to places like Shanghai or uh, and the emergence of Chinese ecosystems um, yeah. for a point. Of, this is purely from a point of view of producing outcomes in terms of in terms of, um, you know, high valuations and um, unicorns and, and billion dollar companies. I think Amsterdam has an interesting um other side to the ecosystem which is that i think amsterdam might be consciously not trying to do this so i think there might be another center of excellence happening in amsterdam which is more for sustainable entrepreneurship yes and that might be about the questions like what do we actually want this entrepreneurship culture and ecosystem to do is it to drive valuations and you know unicorns where actually most of jobs particularly in the digital economy is going to go to developers in a different country or is this to stimulate local employment and you know i don't know, reduce carbon footprint and things like that what are the actual outcomes that that we want and i think amsterdam um authorities are are probably thinking about creating more intentional kpis for the ecosystem which are not around valuations and exits, uh, but more around what's the impact of, on, on society? What's the kind of the socioeconomic impact of this startup ecosystem, which is- And, and can they manage it? And can they manage it, right, yeah. exactly. So I think this is an interesting, p potentially alternative way of thinking about how, how to develop a startup ecosystem. Okay, well, this is a very, I mean, you're so, you know, across, sort of bordered on information. There's so much we, we can talk about today, but we've got the grasp of you, um, Michael, and, and you know, we've, we can talk about this all afternoon. And I, I still have time to binge on Netflix. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you still have time to binge on Netflix. I mean, but yes, you're, you're, you're doing a lot of things. You're teaching, you're, you're consulting, you're, you know, working with ecosystems and, and also fintech. So, I mean, it's, there's a lot of, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed with how you manage your time. But it's been a pleasure talking to you today and I look forward to hearing more and learning more about your course at Harbourspace. Thank you so much. This was another episode of the See You Tomorrow podcast, introducing you to brilliant minds and ideas. Find us on the YouTube channel, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcast. As always, see you next Thursday.